Hi everyone, greetings and salutations. Welcome to episode number 175 of our Bible studies together. Uh, before we begin today's lesson, I'd like to thank everyone for making fun of me about Alexa. <laughs> uh, I have uh, in my little office here an Echo Show that's up on the shelf by the TV. And uh, so I couldn't easily reach it to put it in silent mode. And what I've done is taken it down and put it beside me and actually remembered this evening for the first time to turn it off before we begin. But it's been funny uh, uh, since I've resumed our studies, uh, how often Alexa would go off and I never said her name, but... Uh, uh, I just wanted to thank everybody for making fun of me. Feel free to do so. <laughs> All right. Uh, today, oh, this is a good one. Uh, we begin in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. Uh, here we go in verse 1. One day, Jesus called together his 12 disciples and gave them the power and authority to cast out all demons and to heal all diseases. Then he sent them out to tell everyone about the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Take nothing for your journey, he instructed them. Do not take a walking stick, a traveler's bag, food, money, or even a change of clothes. Wherever you go, stay in the same house until you leave town. And if a town refuses to welcome you, shake its dust from your feet as you leave to show that you have abandoned those people to their fate. So they began their circuit of the villages, preaching the good news and healing the sick. Uh, something to point out here is that um, in Matthew... Uh, if memory serves, the disciples were told to go to the Jews, and they were also told to raise the dead as well as to cure diseases. Uh, why there is a difference between Luke uh, and Matthew, I don't know. Um, if there is a reason, it's not obvious to me. Uh, what is interesting about this is that we know Christ had the power and authority to perform miracles, but that he conferred this power and authority onto his disciples, which at that time, obviously, they became apostles. And that's just, that's just a beautiful thing. Um, something else I like uh, in this section is where Jesus said to stay in the first house, they were made welcome. The way I interpret that, and this is my personal opinion, take it or leave it, is that to me, Christ is saying, if you go to a house and they welcome you, stay there. Because once they go into a town or a village, obviously they are going to meet many different people. And at some point, they might meet somebody who has this big, beautiful mansion. And they might invite you to that mansion. Well, here, Christ is saying, don't be tempted by that. Don't be lured away by that. Your job is to teach about the kingdom. And I love here where uh, Dr. Luke says, their message has to do with the kingdom, which we addressed in our last message. Uh, how does the kingdom come about? What are the stages? And here, Christ is just reemphasizing that their job was to announce the king's presence. He is now here. He is in their midst, and he is willing to reign over repentant people. Okay? those who are willing to repent of their sins and accept them, accept him. He is willing to accept them. And that's just, uh, that's a gift we can all be thankful for. 
Verse 7. When Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, heard about everything Jesus was doing, he was puzzled. Some were saying that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. Others thought Jesus was Elijah, or one of the other prophets risen from the dead. I beheaded John, Herod said. So who is this man about whom I hear such stories? And he kept trying to see him. Well, Herod Antipas, uh, uh, called Herod the Tetrarch, well, Herod Antipas was son of King Herod. Now, King Herod was, uh, King Herod was Herod the Great. Now, the idea of a Tetrarch, uh, how did that work? In the Roman Empire, a Tetrarch was a governor of, uh, a country or a province that was divided into fourths. So there were four joint rulers. Now, Herod, <laughs> I, 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 I'm so tempted to tell the story about John the Baptist, but I'm not going to until we get to that section of Scripture because it still, it still, uh, it still breaks my heart when I think about it. But, but I'm not going to tell you that yet. Uh, but I will say that King Herod was, was bothered by uh, the beheading of John the Baptist. And yes, John the Baptist was beheaded. And he didn't want to do it, but he was forced to do it. And here I am telling the story, but I don't want to tell that story yet. We'll get to it when we get to it in Scripture. But the fact that he beheaded John the Baptist just stuck with him. And here he is hearing about this, this guy out there. He didn't know who Jesus was, performing miracles, raising the dead, healing people. And he kept asking everybody, who is this? Well, some people theorized that it was Elijah risen from the dead. Some people theorized that it was another prophet. But, uh, you know... King Herod was just still, still wrought with anxiety about Christ out there becoming so popular and performing all these miracles. And he tried to meet with Jesus, and he couldn't do it. Uh, as a matter of fact, he didn't get to meet he he didn't get to meet Christ until uh, right before his crucifixion. And uh, and we'll get to that in a little bit too, but. You know, it, the idea about Herod uh, just just being distraught, and here is 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 Herod Antipas, tetrarch of Galilee and Perea, at the time, son of Herod the Great, just just so overwrought with the idea of this man out there performing all these miracles, and. Uh, he did get to meet him right before Christ was crucified. Verse 10. When the apostles returned, now notice here how uh, Dr. Luke calls them apostles now instead of disciples because uh, they were chosen by Christ, they were, uh, they were committed by Christ, they were given the Spirit by Christ. Now they're out teaching the Word they are now apostles. Okay, verse 10. When the apostles returned, they told Jesus everything they had done. Then he quietly slipped away with them toward the town of Bethsaida. But the crowds found out where he was going, and they followed him. He welcomed them and taught them about the kingdom of God, and he healed those who were sick. Late in the afternoon, the twelve disciples came to him and said, Send the crowds away to the nearby villages and farms so they can find food and lodging for the night. There is nothing to eat here in this remote place. But Jesus said, You feed them. Well, I'm, I'm going to pause for a minute here. Uh, first, uh, notice that uh, when the apostles return and they told Christ everything they had done, and crowds 
found out where he was, they all swarmed around Jesus, and Jesus welcomed them. He always welcomed everybody. Okay, And we'll see in different sections of, of Scripture where Christ wanted to go off by himself, uh, most often to pray in earnest to the Father. Okay, Well, here, uh, late in the afternoon, after Christ had taught them and after he healed them, what do the disciples do? The disciples say, the apostles say, send them away, send them away send them away. And what does Jesus do? He says, you feed them. And to me, this says something. This, this, and in a few verses, you'll see where, where Dr. Luke mentions there are 5,000 men. Well, if there's 5,000 men, that means there were women and children with them. And so there's probably something like 15,000 people or more there. That's a lot of people. That's a decent-sized crowd, okay? Well, these 5,000 men are these 15,000 people, and Christ says you feed them. To me, that represents, that represents the lost souls of humanity, Okay? How many people do we have, not only in this country, but in the world, but even in this country of America, where we have churches on every street corner, how many people out there are lost? They haven't been found. They haven't been reborn. They haven't been baptized. They haven't found the truth of the word. All these people out there whether or not they know it, are starving for the word of God. And now, now, why do I say starving for the word of God? How many people are unhappy? How many people are unfulfilled? How many people are looking to alcohol or drugs or sexual immoralities to fulfill this emptiness that they have in their lives? Well, here the disciples are saying, send them away. Christ is saying, feed them. Yes, the disciples probably didn't understand at that time that Christ could, of course, multiply the, the bread and the fish that we're about to get to, just like they didn't understand that Christ could calm the sea and calm the winds and raise the dead and, and heal the sick before they witnessed it. Okay. But to me, Christ is saying more to them when he says, you feed them. He, Christ knows that his, his crucifixion is coming. He wants him, he wants his disciples, he wants his apostles to feed all of the lost so that they can come home. Christ is the king of our upcoming kingdom. He is willing to accept the sinners that we are. He's willing to accept the broken. He's willing to accept those that are bereft of hope. He's willing to welcome anyone in his kingdom that's willing to accept him as their savior. Okay? Christ, can, or, uh, Christ says, you feed them. Then as the apostles say, but we have only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Or are you expecting us to go and buy enough food for this whole crowd? For there were about 5,000 men there. Jesus replied, tell them to sit down in groups of about 50 each. So the people all sat down. Jesus took the five loaves and two fish looked up toward heaven and blessed them. Then breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread and fish to the disciples so they could distribute it to the people. They all ate as much as they wanted, and afterward, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. couple of things here. 
the leftovers just happen to equal 12 baskets for how many apostles? 12 apostles. I find that fascinating. And something else here, when I read that Christ broke the loaves into pieces, what did that look like? He starts out with five loaves and two fish, and he feeds 5,000 men plus women and children, maybe 15,000, maybe 20,000, maybe 30, who knows? But what did it look like when he broke the loaves? And there was infinitely more. Christ could have kept breaking that bread till today if he wanted to, because he's Christ. But what did it look like? I would love to have witnessed that. That would, that would just be... I'm a sci-fi geek, I admit. I love all things sci-fi. To me, science, and I, and I am a scientist. I, I was a professor, as you all know. And I'm pretty decent at science and math. And to me, science explains the ways of God. Uh, I should rephrase that to say, to me, science explains our understanding of the ways of God. Okay, And I just would have loved to witness that, just the infinite bread and the infinite fish. And I think to myself, could God do it with pizza? Of course. Could he do it with steak? Of course. You know, could he do it with my, my mom died in uh, 1985, but before she died, we went up to uh, uh, Mackinac Island up in the UP of Michigan. And they sold uh, fudge there. And some of the best fudge I ever had in my life was from there. And my mom gave me just a little bit. But I wanted more, buddy. <laughs> Let me tell you, I could have ate that all day long. And she, of course, stopped me because it wouldn't have been healthy. But uh, Christ could, of course, made un unlimited fudge, too. Peanut butter fudge is my favorite. Uh, but okay. Uh, now, what comes next? Ah, yes. Now we come to Peter's declaration, uh, verse 18. One day, Jesus left the crowds to pray alone. Only his disciples were with him. And he asked, yeah, uh, before we go on, I, I should say something here. Notice here where it says Jesus left the crowds to pray alone. Uh did Christ ever pray with the disciples? Yes. Did Christ pray for the disciples? Of course. Okay. But Christ's personal prayer time was always alone and separate from the disciples. And th this little section we're getting up to here about Peter's declaration, um, this is often discussed to be the watershed moment of Christ's ministry with his with his disciples. You see, up till now he 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 patiently, slowly taught them about who he is and what he could do by showing them miraculous examples and and teaching them about what the parables meant. But now, we're slowly moving up to the point where Christ begins to focus on the cross and what the cross means. So the watershed moment in his ministry begins in just a couple of verses. So I wanted to point that out. Verse 18. One day, Jesus left the crowds to pray alone. Only his disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do people say I am? Well, they replied, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you are one of the other ancient prophets risen from the dead. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Peter replied, You are the Messiah sent from God. You see here, uh, other translations say the Christ, uh, the Messiah, uh, 
but you know, when we're talking about the Christ, uh, the Messiah, which is a Hebrew term, Christ is a Greek term, they both mean the anointed one. Okay? And so here is the point where Jesus is letting them know, I am the Messiah. And they know what that means because of his teaching. They know how in the Pentateuch and in the Old Testament, it was prophesied. Prophesied. I can never know if it was prophecy. It was prophesied again and again and again that the Messiah was going to come to the nation of Israel. Well, what happens next? Verse 21. Jesus warned his disciples not to tell anyone who he was. Verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many terrible things, he said. He will be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He will be killed, but on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. Now, here, where Christ says, Son of Man, this is a title that Christ gave for himself. And here, where Christ says, he will be rejected by the elders. Uh, he and the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. That's talking about the Sadducees and the Pharisees that we've talked about before. And when Christ rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, you'll see how they reject him. And he is prophesying himself. Okay? He's letting them know what's coming. Okay? And this, I, I, I have to imagine... Uh, I can't imagine would be a better way to say this. If here is Jesus surrounded by his 12 disciples, his 12 apostles, and he's just announced to them who he is, what, what would the apostles think when he's announced that he is that prophesied Messiah? What do they think when he announces to them that the great leaders in their faith would reject the prophesied Messiah. And not only would they reject him, but they would kill him. And after he is killed, he would be raised from the dead. What would they think? I mean... <laughs> the Messiah that they were that uh, that, that that the nation of Israel was, was waiting for, that they 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 imagined themselves this this great warrior, this 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 massive enemy destroying leader that would come and just rescue the nation of Israel. And, and remember, these apostles knew Christ, okay? He spent time with Simon Peter before he chose him. He spent time with his disciples. John the Baptist, remember the story that, that we read together where the Virgin Mary walked into Elizabeth's home and, and John the Baptist jumped and Elizabeth's womb, they knew each other. They, they knew that Christ was, was sinless. They knew how righteous he was. And they knew how honest he was. They, they saw his power in resurrecting Jariah's daughter. They saw his power in healing the sick. They saw his, his ability to teach and lead thousands where thousands would flock to him. They knew who he was. And here he announces that he is the true Messiah of Israel. 
they knew that these were the words of God manifest in flesh. I, I just, I try to imagine myself standing beside the apostles and, and witnessing this confession. Verse 21. Oh, actually, I read that. Uh, okay, okay, verse 23. Then he said to the crowd, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what you and what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but are yourself lost or destroyed? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God. Now, let's go over this uh, carefully. What does it mean when Christ says to deny self? To deny self means that you willingly renounce any right to plan, any right to choose in your life. What that means is to recognize that Christ is Lord in every area of your life. Now, to understand that, okay, some will recoil at what I just said, but to understand that, let's listen to Jesus a little bit more carefully. What does it mean when Christ says to take up the cross? To take up the cross means to deliberately choose the kind of life that Jesus lived. What does that involve? Well, if you have a loved one that denies Christ, you must oppose your loved one. If you have friends that deny Christ. You must oppose your friends. You must invite them to Christ, but you must stand up for Christ. You must oppose their beliefs and stand up for the truth that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. It means you must reproach the world. You must deny the world. How? Well, our world has what? Politicians that lie for self-gain. We have preachers that say homosexuality is okay. Transgenderism is okay. And, and, Murdering babies and abortion is okay. None of those things are okay. We must deny sin. We must deny the world. Uh, if you take up the cross, you, you deny the comforts of this life. Why? Because any comfort that you take for yourself could be used to aid those without 
any basic necessities. Okay? You must train yourself to become dependent upon God. You must be obedient to the leading of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Once you are born again, once you admit you're a sinner, once you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are planted with that seed of the Holy Spirit within you. As you grow that speed, that seed, the Holy Spirit will begin to guide you, to lead you. You have an idea to do something, but then something in the back of your mind says, maybe I shouldn't do that. Well, that leading is the leading of the Holy Spirit. Okay? If you take up the cross, you must proclaim the cross. And proclaiming the cross today is very, very unpopular. Okay? There used to be times on popular TV shows where we would see people going to church and praying and where it was okay to pray in the school, where it was okay to have the Ten Commandments in schools and on buildings and in courtrooms. Well, Christ, the cross, has become unpopular. Why? Because the morality of our nation and our world has fallen away, and it will continue to fall away more and more and more until what? Until it falls so far that Christ himself will return to set things right. And those days aren't too far away. Okay? Taking up the cross can, can be a lonely path. Why? Because it's not popular to live a life that is right and good and true. It is not popular to, to try to live a life of righteousness. It's more popular to go out and drink and party and sin because sin is enjoyment for a while. Okay, even Christ admits that. But it is not fulfillment. It is not contentment. It is not the peace and tranquility and love that comes with a life filled with the Holy Spirit living a life for Christ. If you take up the cross, you open yourself from attacks. From whom? From those that deny Christ. And if you take up the true cross, you'll be attacked by other religious leaders that don't even know what the cross is. Okay? Those religious leaders that condone sin are not going to be happy with the truth of the cross because they themselves are not teaching it. They themselves are not preaching it. They are not teaching that hell is real. They are not teaching that if you don't accept Christ, you are going to go to hell. Why? Because it's not popular. If you take up the cross, you could live a life of suffering. But you're suffering for the sake of righteousness. If you take up the cross you will very likely be slandered and shamed. Okay? That slander and shame is the suffering of the cross for the sake of righteousness. If you take up the cross, you have to pour out your life for others to see. 
show how you've overcome the bad. You overcame that bad through the truth of the light, through the truth of the life, through the truth of the word, through the truth of Christ. If you take up the cross, you have to allow your old self to die so that you have that opportunity to save as many souls as you can. But taking up the cross also involves grabbing hold of what true life is. And true life is serving the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, because no gift is greater than serving our truly righteous Lord. Okay? Taking up the cross means that at last you find the reason for your existence. The reason for your existence is serving others through Christ, for Christ, and that results in your eternal reward. Okay? Now, take a look uh, more closely at uh, verse 25 here. What does Christ say in verse 25? He says, And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but are yourself lost or destroyed? Now, why would Christ point that out? Because he knew the draw of gold and riches. And in our life, he, you know, he, he, would, he would give an example. What good would it do if you could uh, pile up all the gold and silver in the world, if you could own all the skyscrapers in all the major cities of the world, if you could own all the stocks and bonds, uh, if you could own the stock of all the, the largest companies in the world. You see, Christ knew the draw of material things. And that's how many of our churches are teaching today. They're teaching if you follow God, God wants to shower you with, with gold bullion. No, 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 no. How did Christ teach? Give up the ways of this world. Why? First reason would obviously be temptation. Okay? Well, the major reason is obviously temptation. The more money you have, the higher the temptation to sin. Okay? But another and a main reason is that if you give up all of the temptations of this world... And if you train your heart not to be drawn to these material things, you're better able to more fully serve those who are most needy in this world. Okay? Those who are truly lost, not just from God, but even this world itself. How... how how have the homeless populations in the major cities of our country today exploded? Okay? How many churches in those major cities have gone out and given shelter to those homeless people? Is that not their job? Okay? Why are so many thousands of homeless people in our country today living in that filth, in that vileness, in that, in that sickness? Okay? If the major churches in our major cities today 
were doing their jobs, there wouldn't be a single homeless person alive today, period. Okay? Instead, they're out preaching, oh, oh, if you come to our church and if you pray, God will will make you rich or whatever. I don't even want to listen to that. That's not what Christ taught, ladies and gentlemen. We are living in a dying world and a dying country, especially. Why? Because our country has lost sight of its founding. It was founded on Christian principles. If you take Christianity out of democracy, it cannot succeed. If you take morality out of a country, that country will always fail. Okay? Every time throughout history, hopefully your professors are teaching you properly. An excellent example is the Roman Empire. Why did it fail? Morality. Sickness. Okay? Now, this uh, verse 27 here, a lot of people <laughs> amazingly get confused. And let me just read it to you one more time. I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God. Now, before I read on, for those of you listening, raise your hand if you know what Christ is referring to. Raise your hand. Can I see you? Is that you, Bob? Is that you, John? All right. Well, what Christ is talking about here actually comes up in the very next section in the Gospel of Luke. Okay? Verse 28. About eight days later, Jesus took Peter, John, and James up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed, and his clothes became a dazzling white. Suddenly two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared and began talking with Jesus. They were glorious to see, and they were speaking about his exodus from this world, which was about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. Peter and the others had fallen asleep. When they woke up, they saw Jesus' glory and the two men standing with him. As Moses and Elijah were starting to leave, Peter, not even knowing what he was saying, blurted out, Master, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But even as he was saying this, a cloud overshadowed them, and terror gripped them as the cloud covered them. Then a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When the voice finished, Jesus was there alone. They didn't tell any, anyone at that time what they had seen. Now, in verse 27, when Christ says, I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God, was talking about what's referred to as the transfiguration. Now, where the transfiguration took place, uh, well, nobody really knows for sure, uh, but a good guess is uh, is Mount Hermon. It's a, it's a snow-capped uh, uh, a mountain. But uh, what happened here is is Christ in 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 when he indwelt flesh, when he became manifest. Okay. His, 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 his body is sheathed in flesh, hiding 
his true glory. Okay? His glory during the transfiguration was, I don't know if it's fully revealed or partially revealed, or if anybody could actually say for sure. But either way, his robe gleamed with a dazzling whiteness. His face glowed with a bright radiance. And to witness that, oh, Lord Almighty, what would that be like? Well, this is the truth that Christ was talking about. Peter, John, and James got to see a glimpse of the kingdom of God. Moses and Elijah, of course, uh, came to talk about his exodus or his crucifixion, his death, and his resurrection. And uh, I often wonder, what exactly were they talking about? Were they talking about well, I don't want to speculate, but uh, then God showed up and uh, announced to his chosen disciples that this is my son, my chosen one. Uh, some manuscripts uh, and some translations say, this is my dearly loved son, and my favorite way to say it is this is my beloved son. Okay. Next is uh, verse 37. The next day, after they had come down the mountain, uh, I'm still guessing that's Mount Hermon. I, uh, I really need to, to get there to check it out. But anyway, uh, the next day, after they had come down the mountain, a large crowd met Jesus. A man in the crowd called out to him, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, my only child, an evil spirit keeps seizing him, making him scream. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It batters him and hardly ever leaves him alone. I begged your disciples to cast out the spirit, but they couldn't do it. Jesus said, you faithless and corrupt people, how long must I be with you and put up with you? Then he said to the man, Bring your son here. As the boy came forward, the demon knocked him to the ground and threw him into a violent convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the evil spirit and healed the boy. Then he gave him back to his father. All gripped the people as they saw this majestic display of God's power. Now, this section here in uh, verse 41, um, I've, I've, I've wrestled with this. Uh, uh, so the man said, uh, I begged your disciples to cast out the spirit and they couldn't do it. And Christ replies, uh, you faithless and corrupt people, how long must I be with you and put up with you? Uh, bring your son here. Who does this address? Uh, does it address the disciples? Does it address the people? Does it address the Father? I, uh, I'm really not sure. I'm going to pull out some notes from... Uh, uh, one thing I've noticed is that uh, Peter, James, and John were were up uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration with Christ. So he couldn't have been rebuking those three. So he could have been rebuking the nine disciples were, that were there. Um, you know, I'm just going to shut up here. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to project too much, uh, but I'll just say that with this verse, I wrestle with it. Uh, was it that the other religious leaders that were there couldn't do anything about it? I mean, Jesus just came down from the Mount of Transfiguration. Obviously, he had to feel glorious uh, 
at having having been with his father at that time. You know, I, I don't know. I, I, ju- I just want to stop talking about that. Uh, all right, so let's keep going. Verse 40, verse 44, verse 44, actually the end of verse 43. Uh, yeah, well, uh, let's go to verse 43. All gripped uh, as the people, all gripped the people as they saw this majestic display of God's power. Please forgive my fumbling. While everyone was marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Listen to me and remember what I say. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. But they didn't know what he meant. Its significance was hidden from them, so they couldn't understand it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. One way to interpret this verse in 44, where Christ talks about his betrayal, as remember, this comes just after Christ rebuked uh, because of the demon-possessed boy. And so uh, maybe Christ was trying to disabuse them of the notion that he was going to be there to heal everybody until uh, uh, the whole nation accepted him as their king. You know, so maybe here Christ was just reminding them that, hey, I'm going to be betrayed. Uh, uh, I'm I'm going to be crucified. But he didn't want to remind uh, them of the whole story of his crucifixion in front of everyone else. So here, maybe Christ was just trying to disabuse them of the notion that he was going to be there with them until uh, they accepted him as king and he could heal everybody. Okay, why didn't they understand it? Uh, maybe they they lapsed back into thinking, uh, you know, of how popular Christ was, you know. Uh, but clearly, they could see that that uh, that uh, they were afraid to ask him about it after that previous rebuke. Uh, verse forty six. Then his disciples began arguing about. <laughs> This part, I can't help but laugh. Every single time I read this, I apologize. This happened in my last recording, too, uh, when I was doing the previous version. Uh, verse 46, <laughs> then his disciples began arguing about which of them was the greatest. But Jesus knew their thoughts, so he brought a little child to his side. Then he said to them, anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me also welcomes my Father who sent me. Whoever is the least among you is the greatest. And here in this verse where it says, anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf often is translated, whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. Okay, so here where this verse 46 begins with the disciples arguing about which one of them is greatest, it leads back to, to in verse 44, where Christ reminds them of their betrayal. Here, that's that's where my line of thinking is that the, the disciples were probably thinking he's so popular, everybody loves him, he's going to be with us until he's made king, you know, and Christ is just, you know, reminding them, hey, that's not the way it's going to be, okay? And remember, again, he had just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. That's why sometimes, you know, I try to remind you that you can't take a single verse in Scripture and try to apply it to your life. You have to study the Word, okay, and understand the Word, where the Holy Spirit will begin to open your mind and enlighten you and understand the Word in the context in which Christ taught it, okay? Excuse me. Now, here, where um, 
uh, you can't see what I'm pointing at here where, uh, Christ says, anyone who welcomes the little child like, uh, uh, like this on my behalf or in my name, uh, this may not make a lot of sense to you. Uh, and, and some people have brought, have actually brought that up to me. Uh, remember that the disciples were arguing about which one of them is the greatest, right? Well, a way to interpret what Christ is saying here is true greatness is in how we care for the little ones. That's why Christ used the example of the child, okay? Another way to expound upon what Christ is saying is, who are the little ones? Well, the little ones, of course, are children. How do we love children? Uh, are we strong enough to discipline them when we need it? Are we strong enough to hold them when they're crying? Are we strong enough to cry in front of them to show that it's okay to feel pain and to love? Uh, who else are the children? The children are those that the world ignores, like the homeless that I was speaking about before. Uh, those who are not popular, those who are not wealthy, um, those who are overlooked. How we love those that the world does not love shows who is the greatest in the eyes of God. Okay? And that's why Christ emphasizes again Whoever is the least among you is the greatest. And we just went over that when we did the Sermon on the Plains and the Beatitudes and the Woes. Okay? Whoever humbles himself to associate with those that the world considers insignificant or who the world despises is the greatest in the eyes of God. You see, it's human nature to want to, to connect with the popular or the rich, you know. <laughs> what does it say when a person goes up to someone that they don't know to get an autograph and they feel good about having that autograph? Or what does it say when a person goes up to someone that they don't know to ask if that person will take a selfie with them? Okay? That shows that that person is crying out, is reaching out for recognition, for connection. Well, the connection that people should be reaching out for is connection to Almighty God, is connection to Christ, not connection to an actor who has no skill other than being known, okay? Greatness is God. Greatness is righteousness. Greatness is Jesus Christ. Greatness is a God willing to manifest himself in flesh, which is nasty compared to the kingdom of God. Greatness is a God willing to indwell in man in order to suffer torture and crucifixion so that his own blood could wash away the sins of the stained flesh of those that are living today. Christ is saying here, to be the greatest, you must be the least, so that you can associate though with those who need him the most. <clears throat> Verse 49, John said to Jesus, 
Master, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons, but we told him to stop because he isn't in our group. But Jesus said, don't stop him. Anyone who is not against you is for you. A uh, couple of things about this. Um, any work done for Christ in the name of Christ uh, would, by definition, advance the cause of Christ, okay? That's self-evident. But something else that a lot of people don't pull out of this is that if this man was casting out demons, okay, and demons are real, believe me, oh, buddy, uh, if this man was casting out demons um, and he was able to call on the name of Christ in order to do so, Christ was obviously with him, Okay. But the basic lesson here is, uh, like Christ said, if they're not for Christ, they're against Christ. But if they're for Christ, they're advancing his cause. Uh, verse 51. As the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. But the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. When James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, so they went on to another village. Now, um, Samaritans had a had a strong hatred for Jews. And uh, they knew who Christ was, and they knew that he was heading to Jerusalem. And that was just, that's just the nature of, of, of the racism that existed in Samaria at that time. Okay? So that doesn't need any further explanation. But when uh, James and John, okay, offered to, to call down fire, um, and Christ rebuked him. Uh, the reason Christ rebuked him is um, uh, Christ came not to destroy lives, but to save them. And uh, there is another day of vengeance of God coming up, and that's the end times, okay? But the time of Christ's ministry uh, was the acceptable year of the Lord. And the Lord came to save as many lives as possible. And he wasn't there to destroy them. And so uh, we don't need to say any more about that. All right. Verse 57. As they were walking along, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus replied, Foxes have dens to live in, and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place even to lay his head. He said to another person, Come follow me. The man agreed, but he said, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Your duty is to go and preach about the kingdom of God. Another said, Yes, Lord, I will follow you. But first, let me say goodbye to my family. But Jesus told him, Anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Okay, this little section here uh, deals with the cost of following Christ. Okay, first, in verse 57, we have the man who says, I will follow you wherever you go. Well, th this man was eager, okay? Uh, he, was, he, he, he didn't wait to be called. 
he 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 was eager. He 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 offered himself. He didn't fully understand the cost of what it meant to be a disciple. Now the second man, uh, you know, Christ actually called him. You know, he said to another person, "Come, follow me." Well, here the man was willing in a way, but what? He wanted to go and bury his father first, okay? Remember all of the things we talked about, the cost of following the cross, the cost of carrying your own cross. This man wanted to go bury his father first, okay? And notice here that Christ says, let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. And that's something about myself that, uh, well, myself and my father, actually, that died many years ago. Uh, you see, I personally don't believe in funerals, okay? I believe that uh, if you want to uh, love someone, okay, love them while they're alive, okay? To me, funerals are for... I don't want to get into that too much. As a matter of fact, I'm going to stop. But my father and I agreed that uh, he didn't want a funeral. When I die, I don't want a funeral. Don't, In my opinion, don't mourn people when they're dead. Love people while they're alive. Once you're dead, you're in heaven. You know, I'm going to be in heaven. I'm going to be serving Christ in heaven. Okay? And there's a lot of, I'm not going to say any more on that. But, uh, you know, here this man wanted to go bury his father, and Christ says, uh, let the spiritually dead. Your job is to go preach about the kingdom of God. And this last fellow here, uh, Lord, I'll follow you, but uh, first let me say goodbye to my family. And Christ says, hey, Anyone that puts a hand at the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Uh, once you pick up the cross, you know, you don't look back, okay? You're there to serve the kingdom of God. Okay, and that's the end of uh, chapter 9. Uh, as always, uh, feel free to go to goodfriar.com. Uh, you'll see my email address there, me at goodfriar.com, and contact me for any reason. Uh, I'm here for you. Uh, as always, before I leave, uh, I'll bestow a blessing upon you. Heavenly Father, please allow your grace and your love to flow through me as I bless your flock listening to your word. I bestow upon you number 62426. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, God bless.